In James chapter 3, that's where we are today. And as you're turning, let, let, let me just ask, have you, have you ever had trouble with your tongue? I mean, seriously, have you ever had a problem with your mouth? Now, problems can come in, in a variety of ways. It, it, it might be getting the right words out. You're trying to say something and it's just, it's like you're stuck. Or, or the words are getting mixed up. Or, or have you ever found yourself like mispronouncing words? You, mean, you, you, know, you know what the word is, you just, you just can't say it. It could be trouble coming up with somebody's name. Have you ever had that? You see them and you're, and you're, you're thinking, oh no, oh no, they're going to they're gonna come over and here they come. And I, and I, hi, how's it going? So good to see you. I mean, it's, please, Lord, please give me, give me their names. Has it ever happened to you? Sometimes it might be, might, might center around saying bad things. Like, you know, the wrong words coming out, like maybe swearing or being rude or foul or, you know, putting somebody down or, or just, just, just horrible things coming out. Other, other times it, it may be that you're misusing your tongue because you're lying or you're gossiping or you're being mean and hateful. And sometimes you're just plain old putting your foot in your mouth. You know, saying the absolute wrong thing at the absolute worst moment is, am I the only one who's ever done that? I mean, it's, it's, it's just like, you, it's just before you can even stop yourself, the words are coming out and you know that it's not going to be taken well, I mean, here, here's the deal. If, if you sometimes have trouble with your tongue, you are not alone. In fact, it's commonplace. There's not a person here, there's not a person anywhere who doesn't struggle with their tongue at one level or another. Now, last week, Brad Crane spoke from the end of James chapter 2, and he was, he, he was talking about James' words uh, uh, about faith and deeds, faith and deeds. James was speaking to a whole bunch of people who talked about their great faith. Who, I mean, who just let it out. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. My, my faith is big, strong. Scale of one to 10, I'm, I'm a 20. I'm a 20 on the faith level. The, the problem was they were not living it out. They made a lot of noise about what they believed, but when it came to action, it all kind of just fell flat. There was a huge disparity between the things that they said and the things that they actually did. And James responded by basically saying, talk is cheap. It's not good enough to claim that you have faith. I mean, if faith is nothing more than something you claim, if faith is nothing more than you just say, yeah, I believe, I believe, if faith alone were enough to save you, then every demon, including Satan himself, Lucifer himself, would be saved. I want to make sure you heard that. James says the demons believe in God. In fact, here's, here, here are the words in James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe there's a God? I mean, James says, good. You might just read this as kind of like big deal. You believe there's a God? Big deal. Even the demons believe that. They, they even shudder at the thought of that truth. And why wouldn't they shudder? Demons were once angels. Demons, Lucifer, they were actually in heaven. We know that Lucifer was one of the archangels, one of the central core angels. We know, we know a few of their names. There's, there's Michael, there's Gabriel, there was Lucifer. And we, we think of Lucifer as being this ugly name. In Hebrew, it literally means morning star. It's a gorgeous name. And Lucifer was one of the angels around, close to, one, one of those close 
people to God, to the throne of God. But then Lucifer and a host of other angels rebelled. And as they were rebelled, they were, they were cast out of heaven. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, talks about the five I will statements of Lucifer, where he was basically saying, I'm going to run a coup, I'm going to take over, I'm going to, I'm going to take over for God, I'm going to be the new God, I will, I will, I will. I'm going to establish my throne above the stars, above the throne of God. I'm going to be the one that's going to be in charge around here. And then in Ezekiel chapter 28, there, we're reading this prophecy from, from Ezekiel about, about the king of Tyre. And then you get down to verse 11 and things morph. And then it starts talking about the morning star, about Lucifer. And right there in, in Ezekiel 28, we're reading about this mighty one who fell. So here's the question. Does Lucifer and all of the other demons, do they know that there is a God? Do they know that God exists? And the answer is yes, absolutely. They've seen him. They've witnessed him. They've been in his presence. They, they understand his power. They have watched him work. They know God is real. If anybody believes, the demons believe. So is belief enough to save you? And the answer is, the answer is, no. You believe there's a God, so what? The demons also believe they tremble. If, it were, if, if, it, if belief were enough, if faith were enough, and every demon, including Lucifer himself, would be saved. But it's not the case. Revelation chapter 20, 10 makes a big point in saying, at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 20, John, John sees in this vision that the first one that is going to be cast into hell is Satan. Some friends, when it comes to faith, it's not enough to make a claim. When it comes to faith, it's not enough to make a claim. I want, I want you to read that with me because we've got to get that stuck in our heads. When it comes to faith, I want you to read it with me. When it comes to faith, it is not enough to make a claim. Make sure you hear that. Make sure you implant it into your brain. Yes, God wants you to confess Him. God wants you to confess your faith in Him. The Bible is full of verses that tell you to do exactly that. Declare your faith. In the intro to, to his gospel, John writes these words in John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You, you, it, our walk with God begins with faith. It begins with a declaration. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before, whoever confesses me, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before, before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Paul agrees. He goes on. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Your walk with God begins with a statement. It begins with a declaration. It begins with an announcement. I know who God is. I have faith in Him. I'm putting my life into His hands. But is belief enough? Is faith in confessing that faith the end of any responsibility you have in your life with God? And the answer is no. The Bible tells us we need to go much further. In fact, in fact, Brad was sharing with you last week, James chapter 2, verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. 
God, God wants your speech and your lifestyle to line up. He wants them congruous. He, he wants them on the, on the same wavelength. God wants what you claim to be true to be lived out in the things that you do. And with that big point made, made James transitions into chapter 3. But, but he continues on with the thread of our voices. Chapter 2, James is saying it's easy to make great boasts about what you believe, about what you have faith in, which is really no faith at all, because faith without works is dead. But then in chapter 3, James is circling back to your mouth. You, you can say the right things and be far from God, but you can also just say the wrong things. You can use your tongue in really ungodly ways. So what's the message here? Well, it's be careful. Because the words that come out of your mouth are critically important. And to that end, James encourages us with some simple lessons about our tongues that, that we all need to take to heart. Because, I, I, listen, I understand. If, if I struggle, it's right here. And I know that if I'm struggling right here, you're probably struggling right there too. So, so we, we, we need to hear these four truths. We need to cement them into our minds. Four thoughts. Let me begin by saying this. James chapter 3, verse 1 says that we need to firmly establish in our minds the correlation between speech and judgment. Words are not empty things. They're critically important and they should never be taken lightly. And here's the kicker. Your, your words are so important, you will be held accountable by God for the things that you say. Now, the illustration that James uses here is, is with the teachers, the teachers among us. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. If you go back a few weeks to the first message in this, in this series, I gave you some background about who these people are. And really, as James is writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered, it, that's coming right as a reference point back to, back to Acts chap, chapter 8. In, in the chapter just before that, we're reading Stephen. Stephen is arrested, and Stephen is stoned. He's killed. And that opened up a floodgate against Christians. And, and, and it and opened up an open season of persecution against Christians. Suddenly, suddenly, everybody who was following Christ is being hunted down. The Christians living in Jerusalem, because of that, were scattered. But, but that was far from the end of them being treated badly. In fact, honestly, it was just the tip of the iceberg. Because in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, we, we read about Saul, who was, a, who was shortly going to become the Apostle Paul. But this one who is in advancing in Judaism, and many believe that he was going to be the, one of the next high priests of all of, of all of Judaism, is getting letters of authority from the chief priests, and he is taking them on the road to Damascus, which is where some of these Christians have scattered. And he is on a search and destroy mission. He's going to Damascus with letters of authority from the priests to find Christians, to pull them out of their house, to drag them out, to throw them into jail, and to eventually kill them. And it was all being done under the authority of the chief priests. Anyway, with this huge persecution being leveled against Christians, they fled Jerusalem. But they didn't put their tail between their legs. This wasn't like run and hide. This was more like the things that they owned in their jobs and their houses. They were being kicked out of their houses. Everything's being confiscated. They've lost their jobs. They have no way to take care of themselves. They're, they're probably moving home or to where other relatives went. So they, they fled Jerusalem to these other places, but they didn't close their mouths. Instead, 
They were speaking up about who Jesus was and why they believed in him and why everybody should be following him. And and as a result, people by the droves were coming to Christ. And because of that, churches began to spring up all over Palestine. Up to Acts chapter chapter 8, there's one church. It's the Jerusalem church. After Acts Acts chapter 8, churches everywhere are springing up. as 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 a result of that, people needed to be taught. Now, when there was one church, it was the apostles. In Jerusalem, it was the apostles. It's Peter, it's John, it's James. They're, getting, they're the ones that are standing up to address the church. But now with churches all over, there, there's need for a whole bunch of new pastors to rise up. It, it makes sense if you think about it. Back in that day, there's no internet. There's no television. There's no ability to you know, take a, a, a video camera and record a message that Peter has given and then transport it up to Damascus or to Antioch or one of these other places where a church would be located and then put it in and put it on a projector so people could hear it. None of that existed. And because of that, all of these churches needed a pastor teacher to rise up in their midst and to be bringing the message. And what I want you to know is that it would have been a coveted position. There came some prestige. There came some honor with being the person who would be chosen by a church to be the one to get up and bring the message of God. But while there was a blessing that came with holding that position, there was also great responsibility. When you're teaching people, you will be held accountable for what you teach them. It's what James says. We who teach will be judged more strictly. So friends, I, 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 I do not take this 35, 40 minutes lightly in our service. I don't. I spend hours every week pouring over the Scripture and making sure that I understand and making sure that I'm ready to clearly declare exactly what God's Word says. Every pastor, every communicator of God's Word should be diligent here we, because we know that the day is coming when we will stand before God and give an account of what we said to churches filled with people just like you. Nobody should ever take the task of bringing God's Word to listening ears lightly. James says it clearly. There is a correlation between speech and judgment. and We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Now, While James is speaking about teachers here, the reality is this is a truth we all need to accept because here's the truth. Every one of us is teaching somebody. Is that true? You have kids, you have parents, you have friends, you have family members, you have work associates, you have a small group. Every one of us is transmitting information of one kind or another to people around us. Somebody is listening to you as an authority. And when somebody is elevated into that position of authority, it carries weight into the lives of the people who are sitting listening to those words. And that means that not just the teachers that are the ones that are up front on a platform on Sunday morning need to be careful. It means that all of us need to be careful with what we're saying. And Let let, let me add one more critical thought here, friends. And I've said this several times over the past several months. I'm going to keep saying it because we are living in dangerous times. 
But I'm really, really, really leery when I hear the words, God told me. God told me, and then people will begin to proceed what God told them. And I hear those words, and I'm, I'm just telling you, there's something inside of me that cringes. And I want to encourage you to be very, very, very careful about invoking the authority of God over the things that you say, invoking the authority of God over your actions or your teaching, especially when the words that you're saying do not come out of the Bible. Because here's the truth. The Bible is our only source that tells us what God said. Do you agree with that? Come on now, yes? This, this is God's Word. And if I'm going to say that God said something, I better make sure that what I'm saying is in line with what this book says. Just invoking God told me because in your spirit someplace you feel like this is something that God said doesn't mean that God actually said it. Listen, God, God went to great lengths to communicate with us. And, that, and, and then over the course of the last 4,500 years, or so he's been, 3,500 years, he's, he's, been, he's been transmitting it down to us. He very carefully declared it, and then he very carefully and pointedly preserved it, all for the purpose of helping to lead us to the truth. And everything you believe God is saying, you better be able to weigh it against this book because if this book doesn't say it, that doesn't mean that what you're believing God told you is correct. If anything I believe or say is contrary to what's in this book, it is not this book that's wrong. If there's anything that's, that is in contradiction to what this book says, it's what I believe that would be wrong. And I want to encourage you, friends, to do the exact same thing here, to evaluate your words. Instead of standing on what you may believe God is saying to you through, through the recess of your mind, get established into the word of truth, the Bible, and allow this to be your guide and your direction and, and, and the place that, that, that draws your attention. Paul lays out the standard in 2 Timothy 2.15 when he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. The longer we walk with God, the more we should read this. The more we read this, the more it should be planted into our head. And we should be people who know what it says and know what it means and know how to apply it into our lives. And so we are correctly handling the word of truth. We are wise when we make our stand right here. And that's why it's become a habit of mine to pass my Bible to other people. God told me, and then somebody will say, you know, I'm having lunch with somebody. They say, God told me, and I know that what they just said is not in this book. God, so I, what I'm saying is God didn't say that. So what, I'm, what I'll do is I'll just pass my Bible and I'll say, great, show me. Show me where God said that. And that's when people get a little bit like, well, I, I don't know where it says. I said, well, maybe before you declare that God says something, you ought to know that God actually said it. And let me give you a little bit of help here before you even spend a lot of time looking for that. The Bible doesn't say what you just said. We have got to be people who are careful because every single one of us 
is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Our, our words will be brought into judgment. We will be held accountable for the things we say, especially when they come in the form of teaching other people. We will be held accountable. Let's, let's move the slide ahead. We will be held accountable for the things we say, especially when they come in the form of teaching. So be careful. In fact, we ought to invoke the words of James here. James 1.19, my dear friends, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Before, before you're making a declaration, close down your mouth and open up your ears to what God actually did say. Slow to speak, quick, quick to hear. And it leads to a second thought that James lays down about our tongues. And it's simply this, that we should never underestimate the power of our tongues. I have a good friend, his, his name is Dale Holzbauer. He's one of my mentors. I've been blessed to know him for nearly 40 years. In fact, a year from this fall, it will be 40 years. I met him in August of 1981. Dale was the senior pastor of the Branch Hill Church of Christ. I was, Brenda and I were newly married. We were moving to Cincinnati. The reason we were coming there was to go to seminary. And Dale was the pastor of a church that was looking for a new youth pastor. And I was looking, I was looking for a ministry job as a youth pastor, somebody I could work under, and Dale became that guy. In fact, my real my first real training in ministry came under this guy right here, Dale Holzbauer. So if there's things about me that you don't like, it's all his fault, all right? If you need his name or his number or his address, I'll be happy to hand it out and you can call him and, and blame him. Anyway, I, I first, when, I, when I first met Dale, the thing that I really first noticed about him was that he was small. He's small in stature. And I mean, I mean like really small. I met him when he was 34 years of age, and at that point, he was five feet three inches tall. I think since then, he's actually probably shrunk a little bit, as all of us are prone to do as we grow a little bit older. But at that day, he was five three, and he weighed 115 pounds. I'm talking he was small. And when you look at somebody who's small in stature, it's easy to underestimate them. And I'm just telling you, if you would have done that with Dale Holzbauer, you, you would have. In fact, even today, it... it, it in, into his 70s, that would be a critical mistake to evaluate him as not being very powerful. Dale is strong as an ox. He, he was an Olympic weightlifter. And in, in fact, he was an alternate for the 1980 Olympic team. And some of you will remember that was the year that Moscow had invaded Afghanistan. And so the, the world was kind of like screaming and the United States boycotted the Olympics. Do you remember that? That's the year. Dale Holzbauer was on the Olympic team that year. And at 115 pounds, he could clean and jerk. That's, that's that motion where you, where you bend down, pick up the bar and then bring it to here and then push it over your head. 115 pounds, he could clean and jerk over 300 pounds. He could put almost triple his body weight over his head. He had the ability at that point to, to, um, to, to bench press like 350 or 380 pounds. I mean, the guy is strong as Knox. Today, he's 70. I wish I had the ability to show you, but, but, but today, he can still, at the age of 70, whatever he is, he can deadlift over 425 pounds off the ground. This guy is strong as Knox. And on top of that, he's also a fourth-degree black belt in karate. He's quick as a cat. If you blink your eyes, he will have already hit you four times. You, I mean, you don't even see it coming. 
And, and I, I've, I've watched, like you have, all kinds of people in karate, you know, break things, break ice, break bricks, break boards. They, they, there's tricks to it. They, they, you know, they put, the, they put those boards kind of at the very edge, and then there's, there's weakness in the middle, and when you, when you hit it, it, it's not as difficult as it may look. But I've watched Dale literally pick up a brick, a brick, and hold it in his hand and hit it so hard that the brick broke. No trick to that. The guy is just strong, wicked strong, wickedly powerful, wickedly fast. If I was ever in a dark alley and I was, I was about to be attacked, there's one guy I would want to have next to me, and it's this little guy named Dale Holzbauer. We had a kid in our youth group at, at Branch Hill, and the kid was really, really, really good at getting into trouble. And the other thing about this kid is he was big. He was 6'2", and he was kind of a string bean. He weighed, he weighed about 175, 180 pounds. 6'2", 180 pounds, and, and he, he used to love to make fun of Dale. He would come up and put his, you know, his elbow on Dale's head and called him shrimp, called him midget. He would laugh at him, make fun of his stature, and you know, he, 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 he went further. Not only did he make fun of his size, but he made fun of, he made fun of karate. He said it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like wrestling. It's all, it's, 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 it's all a joke. It's all fake. It's just, it's, just, it's, it's, just, it's just grown men you know, in tights acting weird. So one day he was just all over Dale. It's, it's kind of after school. He stopped by the church, and, and I hear him going out, and, and Dale's kind of had enough of it, you know? And there's wisdom to know when you push somebody to a point that is like over the edge. You, you know where those points are, right? This kid just keeps going. He's pushing and pushing and pushing. He's laughing, calling Dale a midget. And, and he, at that point, Dale, Dale turns around. He goes into his office, and he comes out with a banana bag. Now, Dale's, Dale's bag, it was a big pad. It was kind of shaped in, in the form of a banana. It's about, it's about two and a half or three feet long, and it's got handles in the back. You, you, put, a hand, you put a hand here, put a hand here, and you, you literally bring it into your body. So Dale said, I have the ability to kick you across the room. And the kid just laughed. He said, you, 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 you couldn't even reach my stomach, little shrimp. And <laughs> so Dale got his bag. He, he, he put the kid, he said, I want you to put your left foot behind you. I want you to brace. I want you to put weight forward. You put your arm here, put your arm here. I want you to bring that right in tight to your body. The kid is still laughing. And, 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 and Dale, is, Dale is like over the edge at this point. And I'm backing up because I know what's coming. Dale, Dale takes a moment and he, he brings a roundhouse kick just very slowly. And he kicks the kid right here in the stomach. And he says, that's where I'm going to hit you. You tell me when you're ready. And the kid says, I'm ready. You can't. And before he even got the sentence out of his mouth, Dale had already flipped around, hit the kid, folded him literally in half. The kid was flying 10 feet into the corner, sliding down. His eyes are about this big around. He has no breath. Dale <laughs> takes the banana bag. Talk about liability in a church, right? It's easy to see something that's small and take it for granted. It's easy to see something small and think it has little significance. And sometimes doing that is a big mistake. And that's where James leads us in this next discussion about the tongue. James 3.5, likewise, the tongue is small. It's a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And help us understand exactly what he's saying. James, James puts out a couple of illustrations. James chapter 3, verse 3 says, we, we, we put bits into the mouth of horses to make them obey us. And with this little piece of metal, we can turn the whole animal. We can, we can cause it to go 
wherever it wants to go. Any of you, any of you ride horses? Several of you do, I know. And you, you, it's, it's an amazing thing, this big, huge, strong beast of an animal, that little, that little piece of metal right here has the ability to make it go where you want it to go. James says in verse 4, take ships as an example. Although they are so large and they're driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. I, I was looking this week on the internet thinking about the scope of an of a aircraft carrier. And, and I found this picture of the USS Ronald Reagan. It's really kind of hard in this picture to get a grip, although if you, if you look on the deck, you can see all these kind of, they look like ants. They're stacked up here. The Ronald Reagan is 1,092 feet long. It's, two, it's, it's 252 feet wide. It stands over 200 feet from the water to the top. Think of a 20-story building. And just to help you get a magnitude here, the, the sailors on this, on this ship decided at one point they were going to park some of their cars on the deck. And you start thinking about how big this boat is. It looks like a parking lot is how big it is. And that huge ship is steered by a little rudder. The, the, the rudder for an aircraft carrier is like 25 feet tall and about 15 feet wide. And when you think about it in the magnitude of the ship, it's absolutely nothing. But there's a pilot that's up, up, up on the bridge and that captain is directing and somebody is moving that and that little, that little rudder is turning and that whole ship will turn in the, in the ocean and completely change direction. Small, but significantly powerful. And then James adds one more picture. It says in, in verse 5, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. When I was growing up, for a season, we lived in Southern California out in the San Fernando Valley in Northridge. And Northridge could be really hot in the summer, and there were hills all around us. San Gabriel Mountains were not too far away. And, and when, those, when summer dried out, people were you know, always maybe flicking a cigarette out a window or something, and then you know, one of these huge forest fires would start. And once those fires started, I mean, they would rage. And, and we lived in a home, in a track of homes that all had shake, wood shake roofs. And I can remember as a kid watching my dad up on the roof with the hose watering down because a, a fire that is miles away can pick, up, can pick up just a little spark on the wind and that thing can fly and before you know it, it's hit a rooftop and boom, the whole thing goes up. James says our tongues follow these same paths. Small, but mighty. Small, but powerful. James 3.5 says, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Verse 6, the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of its life on fire, and it in, in itself is set on fire by hell. Great boasts, great damage. That's what James says has the ability to come from this little tiny appendage in our mouths. And I doubt, I doubt there's a person in here that would disagree with the statements. Every one of us has been badly hurt by words that have come at us. My youth ministry in California, we had a, we, we had a whole bunch of kids that just really came from troubled situations. But I'm thinking of one kid who grew up in the, in 
the family of a church family. From the time he was little, his parents had declared that he was rotten and horrible and not capable of anything and was never going to amount to anything. It was basically a useless piece of junk that was walking the face of the earth. This is his Christian parents talking to him. When I, when I got there, he was a junior in high school, and it was already so far implanted in him that it couldn't ever go any deeper. In reality, the kid was very smart, and he was very capable and very talented. And today, if you knew who he was, you would know that he's drugged out, and, he, and he's completely messed up, and he's, he's, he, he has become a fulfillment of a prophecy that his parents laid on him all those years ago. Is your tongue powerful? The answer is Yes. Your words have the ability to alter the trajectory of other people's lives. And I'm just telling you, that's powerful. Instead of underestimating our tongues and looking at them and seeing them as small and maybe insignificant, what we ought to be doing instead is overestimating their ability to create turmoil and damage. So so my encouragement is to follow the words of James, and that's to take account. What are your words doing? Are they lifting other people up? Are they tearing other people down? Are they encouraging other people to step out? Are they discouraging people? Are they helping people to move in right directions? Are you putting up roadblocks and hindering people from going to where they need to go? Are you bringing life or are you bringing death? destruction. We need to take account, friends. And and with that, I'd suggest that we need to be careful. Careful, very careful about the way that we choose to speak to other people. Leads to a third thing that James says about our tongues. And, And that is that they are a barometer of our hearts. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it's true. When you open up your mouth, you're revealing your heart. If you want to know what is down inside of somebody, then listen to them. Over an extended period of time, listen. Don't just listen to a a sentence or a paragraph. Listen to what they say, to how they talk. The things that are down inside of you come out. They are revealed when you open your mouth. You, you may think that you're hiding who you are. You may think that it's, it's, it's a big mystery to everybody around you. I'm just telling you, not true. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in his heart, for out of the overflow of his heart his mouth speaks. If you really want to diagnose the condition of someone's heart, then according to Jesus, listen to their words. your desires, your lust, the things you hold dear, hate, anger, bitterness, they're all revealed when we talk. Someone who's a good listener can easily pick up on what other people believe just by listening. And for way too many of us, our Speech patterns reveal that we are far from righteous and far from holy and far from being godly. James fully agrees. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man. Any perfect people around here? No, we're far from it. And, And because of that imperfection that's down inside of us, it comes out of us. 
James 3, verse 7 says, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Those are powerful words. A person who never misspeaks, who never is at fault in what he says, is a perfect person. And we know that that doesn't describe any of us because we all know that down in our hearts, there's some junk. So what's the point? Listen to your mouth. Listen to yourself. Take the opportunity to allow somebody to give you feedback about what they hear you saying and how you are saying it. How you are acting and reacting and treating the people that are around you. Open up your ears. Start listening to yourself. Remember James' encouragement. James 1.19. Be quick to hear. Which leads to one last thought about our tongues. And it deals with hypocrisy. James, James says we need to be aware of being double-minded and double-tongued. There's really nobody out there with two, two minds or two tongues. It, it's an, it would be an interesting picture if we did, you know, like, I don't know, if you'd have like two lobes on your head or, you know, two, I can't imagine having two tongues in my mouth. But while you may think this is comical, I'd encourage you not to go there because it's not comical at all. What James is talking about here is hypocrisy. We all know what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is a, is a person who is inconsistent. The things they say and the way they actually live run in opposite directions. These people are completely inconsistent. You listen to them and then you watch them and you'll scratch your head because what they say they hold dear is not really what they do hold dear. What, what they say they believe in is really not what they believe in because their actions are condemning what they're saying. And the reality is that it's easy to be hypocritical in your speech patterns. And you know what the truth is? It's easy to be that way with God. It's easy for our speech patterns with God to be hypocritical. Listen to what James says, chapter 3, verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Can both, can, my brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. When I was a kid, several times I witnessed this. My mom would be just really angry. Angry to the point of, of being loud verbally and slamming doors. Slamming cabinets. When that happened, it was duck and cover. You know what I mean? And the truth is, if my mom was ever in that condition, it was probably my fault. I had probably provoked her to be into that position. So I, while I'm talking about my mom here, what I'm saying is, it's probably my fault I probably pushed her to that place. My mom told me that every gray hair she had was probably my fault, and she was probably being kind by saying just the gray hairs, because listen, every wrinkle, every stress, I, it probably came from me. But here's what I remember sometimes. My mom would be screaming and yelling and wanting to take me out because I probably deserved it, and then the doorbell would ring. And my mom would go, yeah! She'd open the door and go, well, hello! 
I'm watching this going, this is another moment of provoking, you know, like, who are you, lady? You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's, <laughs> I, I would watch this stuff go down and just think, it's being hypocritical. And it's easy to do. And it's easy to do it with God. I wonder how many families got in the car this morning and driving to church. They had World War III on the way to church and they came through the door and it's like, hello. We're having coffee in the gathering place. How's your week? Great. How are you? Great. I almost killed my kids. Great. It's so easy to come into church on Sunday morning and say, we love you, God. We love you, God. And then walk out of here slamming doors. Hypocrisy. And the word of God, the word of James, be careful. If you're praising God here, and living a life out there that is very different from that, your actions are condemning your words. And the thought from James is, change. Now friends, truth be known, we all have steps to take. None of us are perfect in our speech, none of us. We all have areas that are out of line. We all have, we all have areas that we have difficulty right here. And honestly, for that, we need to repent. When God's Word says there should be no foul language, it means there should be no foul language. When God's Word says there should be no coarse joking, there should be no coarse joking. When the Lord tells us that we should not be abusive, but be loving and kind, we should not be abusive. We should be loving and kind. And when I find myself down these roads where Anger and abuse and volatility is coming out of my mouth. It's really revealing my heart. And what James wants to say to us is this right here is a picture of this right here. And if this is out of line, if this is out of line, if this is out of line, I'm telling you, friends, this is out of line. Your relationship with God cannot be okay if all of this is broken. And so God, through the James, is encouraging us to repent, to turn, to allow our hearts to become a reservoir of grace and love and kindness and joy and encouragement, and truth. God's calling you to take account. Let me encourage you. Bow your heads. Would you do that? And maybe there's even an area right now where your heart is pricked. an area right now that you know is not what God wants, is not where God wants it to be. And 
the best thing you could do would be to acknowledge that. And tell the Lord that, commit to the Lord that you're going to take on his attitude and his likeness, his mindset. And you're going to allow all of that to change you to the point that it affects how you talk. So Lord, I pray that you'll help us this morning. So easy to look at others and point fingers about where they are and where they're maybe out of line. I pray, Father, you'll help all of us right now to put on blinders so that we can see nothing but ourselves. And honestly take account. Giving credence to the truth that we will be judged by the things that we say. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to draw near to you and allow you to have your way with us. And we lift it in the one who makes it possible, Jesus. And God's people said,